What does it take to change the ways of a company? What about a big company? What about some of the biggest companies in the world, especially in China, where the composition of boardrooms and the motivation of investors present a whole different set of challenges? In this podcast, we're going to hear from Fidelity's investment team, who have been working directly with some of China's corporate giants to build more sustainable businesses. Sustainable investing and active stewardship are established in places like Europe, where environmental, social and corporate governance concerns have shot up the agenda. Listen on to hear exclusive research on how shareholder voting is changing in China, and stories from Fidelity International's own engagement, and what that tells us about the future of stewardship in the country. Joining me today are in Singapore, Jen Hui Tan, Global Head of Sustainable Investing, and in Hong Kong, Flora Wang, Portfolio Manager with a focus on sustainable investing. Welcome to you both. Now, Flora, um, Fidelity has just published the first survey of stewardship in China. Now, before we go any further, what exactly does stewardship mean in the context of investing? So stewardship means capital providers, including both um, shareholders and, and bond investors, acting in a responsible manner by monitoring companies on a long-term basis, especially with regards to how they look after their environmental and social footprint and talk to companies when concerns are identified and work with companies to improve their practice over time. It's also about um, exercising the voting rights we have as a shareholder in a way that is in the interest of our clients in the long term. So this is engagement, isn't it, Flora? And Jen, um, why does that sort of engagement, why does that matter in China? So engagement matters everywhere. And it's a, core, it's a core component of any expression of a responsible investment strategy. But in China, I think it's particularly important because there aren't that many companies right now that you would describe as being best in class in China. And so a lot of the, the opportunity, both from a, a, a traditional financial investing opportunity, but also from a sustainability perspective, is investing in companies that are improving their sustainability profile. And it's by engaging with those companies and helping them to improve that we can have that financial performance, but also we can have that positive impact on the environment and society. Okay, thank you for that, uh, for that context. Now, Flora, coming back to you, let's talk about the report itself now. Um, what were you trying to do with this report and what did the report actually find? The reason why we decided to look at the um, stewardship thing in China is because, as we just touched on, stewardship is a very important component of sustainable investing. And as Jen alluded to just now, um, because most companies in China are still at a relatively low base, a sustainable investing strategy anchored in stewardship is going to be a lot more effective than a divestment or best-in-class approach. So that's why we thought, you know, having a closer look at how stewardship works in China, where it is today, will provide a lot more useful insight to our clients and, and anyone who's interested in investing in China. Um, another objective we're trying to achieve with this report is, is actually to dispel some of the common misconceptions uh, when it comes to voting and engagement in China. Now, the first misconception is actually, you know, voting doesn't matter because it's a market dominated by companies with a controlling shareholder. And as a minority investor, if I vote, you know, that probably doesn't gonna make a dent on the voting outcome. But that's actually not true because firstly, you don't actually have to block a transaction to make an impact. You know, companies are alerted if the level of dissent is higher than euro level. And that's particularly true for resolutions like um, election of directors because 
it's it's kind of personal. And I've had many companies coming to me asking me why you know a certain director had a much lower approval rate compared to um, the other directors, and by much lower they mean probably shorter by one percentage point. So very small differences in voting can actually have an impact. That's interesting. And as, and as you said, the, it's uh, a relatively unknown area. So part of the um, objective was to, to set out what the current scene is um, of stewardship in China. And what did it find? What did the report tell you briefly? Just give me a little overview. So firstly, investors are voting a lot more and they're also um, voicing their dissent a lot more frequently. Um, secondly, they are also um, engaging with companies a lot more on ESG matters. Um, from the company front, we have observed that companies are um, putting a lot of efforts to make it easier for investors to participate um, in shareholder meeting and also to talk to them on these ESG issues by giving them more information. And from the regulator perspective, you know, from CSRC, which is the um, securities regulator in China, and the industry organization, the um, Association of Asset Management in China, as well as the two exchanges, there are lots of policies to help both investors and companies to do stewardship better. So there's a receptiveness both amongst the authorities and the companies themselves who are not deaf to the um, to the requests that are being made. Um, that's really interesting. And, and Jen, just to put this into the context of um, the rest of the world. How, how does China compare in shareholder action like this? The, the, the starting point to say is that engagement in China isn't necessarily different from engagement around the world in the sense that you're always more likely to have a better outcome if you understand the company, understand the company's business, and you're um, addressing your concerns in a way that, is, that, that management would find receptive. So that's true, you know, I think right around the world, but, but you know, particularly so in, in, in China. I think where China is a little bit different is in maybe two key respects. One is that we have a very large preponderance of companies with controlling shareholders. Just under 80% of MSCI China has a controlling shareholder. And so understanding the dynamic of that controlling shareholder, whether it's a, 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 an, an individual, a family or the state... And your position as an institutional investor, that's quite important. And China shares that in common with the emerging markets. Um, and the second, I think, is the sort of the social context of China, I would say. So right around the world, the social license of a business to operate, I think, is a quite a well-understood concept now. And generally speaking, it's implicit in the sense that companies are dependent at some level on consumers and society saying, look, it's okay for you to run your business and take profit from, from us in a, in a certain way. But in China, I think that social license is quite explicit, either because you are a state-owned enterprise, and so there's quite a strong element of national service in the way you have to conduct your business. But I think even interestingly, if you're a private enterprise and you're one of the large players that's granted you know, a license to operate in a specific field by China, I think there is a quite a clear understanding that you need to operate your business in a way that takes into account all of China's stakeholders, not just your own shareholders. So for investors from outside China, there is actually um, a different context to try to, to get to grips with um, here. Flora, you talked about um, changing uh, investor attitudes. Are you seeing different types of investor in China at the moment and, and how they might be engaging with the, the investee companies? Yeah, I think one key 
change or, or shift we have observed over the past few years is, is the shareholder constitution of the Asia market. I think previously it was heavily dominated by retail investors and people like my parents who don't really understand, you know, what the companies that investing are doing, and yet they still continue to, 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 to trade on the market. But over time, we're seeing institutional investors taking a much larger share of free flow of the market, coming up to close to 50% um, by, I think, July. And that's the underpinning of the kind of, you know, change in behavior from investors we're observing. Um, I still remember, you know, um, a few years ago when, when Trump was elected in 2016, a construction company went limited up because it has the name Trump in its name, even though it has nothing to do with the U.S. or, you know, the U.S. politics. That gives you a sense of um, where the market was. But with the increasing share of institutional investors, we're observing more sophistication, longer time horizon attitude, and, and that um, closer interaction with companies around ESG issues. And the picture from the report seems to be that this is a, a slow but gradual and, and quite definite um, uh, change. There's a clear direction, isn't there? For sure, because ownership by foreign investors has increased as a result of the uh, market opening and inclusion of the main indexes such as MSCI and FTSE. And with that increasing share of foreign ownership brings in that focus over the longer term horizon and, and their years of experience around voting and engagement. That's I think, influencing the behavior of local asset managers as well. But at the same time, as the local asset manager trying to expand their business overseas, they need to align their practice with what's happening outside of China as well. So I think it's a convergence of um, practice between domestic and international asset managers in China. Just to jump in there, I think so. So you're absolutely right in that, that the report paints that picture of that gradual improvement. But I think globally, what we've seen this year in particular is this explosion of interest in ESG, you know, a, a curve that's gone parabolic. And, and that is in, as true in China as it is globally. So my sense is that, that yes, we've seen that, that gradual improvement, but also that we could also be at a tipping point here. And that, you know, if, if, if we look out next, next year and the, and the two or three years after that, I think we could see quite dramatic changes. And that's, you know, encapsulated also in the attitude of the Chinese government, not least in the net zero announcement that President Xi made at the UN Se uh, General Assembly this year. And that was to get uh, China to net zero by 2060. And I know 2060 sounds like it's 10 years later than, say, the EU or the US or, or other major markets. But actually, if you compare... Um, the length of time from when China will peak its carbon emissions, which is 2030, to the time it will achieve net zero, that's actually only a period of 30 years, which, you know, by, by international comparison, is a lot shorter than the other markets that we're familiar with, which have um, peaked a trough of more than 50 years in some cases. I was going to say another reason why we believe this trend is going to continue, um, if not accelerate, is, is a growing body of middle-income consumers that are um, expressing um, more awareness around the environmental and social footprint of the product and service they actually consume. We recently did a survey of um, Chinese consumers because you know lots of people are stuck at home because of COVID these days. A lot of them are considering uh, have like come to realization of the importance of having having a nice apartment. So a lot of them are actually considering to renovate their apartment. And as they do that, we ask you know what 
factors they would take into account. And the number one factor that came from our respondents is actually using green materials. So I think that gives an indication as to how consumer preference is shifting in China. And that's really important because if consumers care about environmental and social footprint of, of the product and service they're consuming, companies need to as well. So I think that gives us a very strong level of assurance of this trend continuing. Okay, so there is um, a a wall of interest at almost every level, it seems. You've got um, the government, you've got the investors, you've got consumers all aware of this, and companies can't be deaf to it either, Jen. Um, My question is, though, that if, um, as you said, 80% of um, companies on the MSCI um, China Index have got uh, majority stakeholders, so they're used to getting things their own way, what's in it for them? Why are they having to change their, uh, their minds? And, and be receptive to these requests around stewardship. Yeah, so I, th- I think some of this we've, we've touched on, the attenuation of Chinese companies to the needs of Chinese society and the direction set by Chinese regulators. I think that's a, that's a really important factor. Um, Chinese companies observe a very high level of compliance. And I think Chinese regulators are, are quite determined to use the concepts of, of ESG as a way to bootstrap the development of their capital markets to accelerate it into 2030 and beyond. So I think these are structural pressures that are, that are occurring not just to the financial markets in China, but I think also to Chinese society that, that companies really can't, um, can't ignore anymore. I think going back to, to my point on some of the objectives of this report, which is to dispel misconception. You know, even though in China you have lots of companies with a controlling shareholder, voting still matter because the regulations protect minority shareholders from such dominance of controlling shareholder. And one requirement is actually for related parties' actions to be approved by only independent investors. So related party transactions is essentially the controlling shareholder buying or selling assets from company at a you know price not based market terms. And for that type of transaction, the controlling shareholder actually cannot vote on those transactions. That gives us minority shareholders a lot of influence. And we have actually observed many um, cases where minority shareholders successfully used our votes to protect the, the value of our investment. So it's quite a different um, environment, isn't it, from, from other places? It's really interesting. Okay, well, we're going to hear a little bit more about one of those companies that Fidelity has been working with. Terence Tsai is an analyst based in Hong Kong, and he's been talking to our Asia editor, Neil Goff, about China's eye-popping delivery sector. Here he is. Terence, ZTO is China's biggest express delivery service, and it couriers packages from e-commerce giants like Alibaba or JD to homes across the country. What's the scale of this entire sector in China and specifically ZTO's operations? I think what's interesting is how mind-boggling the numbers are for China's express delivery industry. Just last year alone, there was about 63.5 billion parcels delivered. Uh, by October this year, we have already exceeded that number, um, and, and we're on track to hit over 80 billion parcels uh, this year. ZTO is the number one player uh, in terms of market share in China and has about 20% of the market. You know, Just in the last quarter, ZTO probably delivered over 50 million parcels per day when you have the singles day shopping event or you know the upcoming uh, double 12 shopping event. 
that number could go up a lot more to maybe, maybe hit 80 million a, a day. So the, the scale is mind-boggling, and ZTO is just one player in the China landscape, but it already delivers more parcel than your FedEx, DHL, and, and UPS combined. That, that's a staggering number of boxes flying around the country. Uh, it kind of paints a pretty clear visual image of how much cardboard must be ending up in landfills or not. You know, ideally it's getting recycled. And am I right that you first started raising these issues with the company back in 2018, was it? Well, tell me about that. What was the initial reception? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously for, for my research process, it came up as a red flag when their ESG rating from the major rating agencies were, uh, were very poor. And so I thought it would be important uh, to clarify these with the companies so that I fully understand the non-financial risks or the ESG risks that are involved by owning their shares or being an owner of the company. I was actually very surprised at how receptive the company was. And they engaged with us in these in these discussions where I pointed out that, hey, these um, ESG rating companies are penalizing you based on these criteria. Uh, are you aware of, the, of this? And what is your response to that? And we went through line by line, just two or three months later, they released their first English ESG report. And then this year, in June, they released the 2019 ESG report. It had a lot more quantifiable metrics uh, that investors tend to look at, that rating agencies tend to look at uh, in terms of ESG. And I thought they did a much better job and, and, and took it more seriously. It was also really encouraging to see the company uh, link management compensation, senior management compensation with ESG metrics. And you can tell that uh, over time, as we spoke with them and told them the importance of uh, ESG that investors are looking at, that they took it uh, to a next level way above and beyond what their peers are doing. So Terrence, can you talk a little bit about why ZTO and indeed all of these kind of express uh, delivery companies in China, you know, might be approaching this issue of ESG you know, differently? I think the first aspect is that many of these founders are thinking of their businesses as entrepreneurs, and they're thinking in terms of decades and generations, as opposed to your average CEO with a tenure of you know three to five years. They're thinking about bringing their company to a level that was better than when they founded it. I guess they're thinking about it for, for their children when they succeed the company, how they can run it better. The second aspect is they all have global ambitions. They wanna bring their business to the world stage to compete globally. And what is really important for them is to have their companies manage sustainably like their Western peers, and also to get the same kind of respect and acceptance from institutional investors who are focusing more on these ESG factors. How is the rest of the industry reacting? Are they trying to play catch up or where do things stand? ZTO definitely took a leadership role in disclosing their commitment to um, ESG, but it has inspired other players. Uh, I would expect more and more of these companies to follow ZTO's lead, putting a lot more emphasis on on, on ESG. 
that was really interesting. Terence Tsai there talking to, to Neil Goff with um, stories from the ground about transforming perceptions around um, ESG, both within a company, an investee company, and the perception from outside of what was going on at the company. And then also that point about the motives of founders, these, these bosses of companies um, who were definitely in it for the long term, quite different from chief executives of, um, of companies um, elsewhere. Flora, can you think of some other examples where Fidelity's engagement with Chinese companies has, has changed things in, in this sort of way? Yeah, so I think another a common misconception is that you can't engage with Chinese state-owned enterprises, the SOEs, because especially not on these ESG issues, because it might be perceived as intervening with the governmental affairs. Again, you know, based on our experience, that's that's actually not true. So uh, another engagement example is is actually our um, engagement with PetroChina on climate change. So Fidelity has become a um, member of the Climate Action 100 Plus initiative, which is a global um, investor collaborative initiative focused on engaging with the top emitters globally on climate change issues. And we are co-leading the engagement with a number of companies in China, including PetroChina. And and earlier this year, we had a conversation with the company where we, um, as an investor group, highlighted to the company the importance of having a clearer strategy around um, aligning its business with the global low carbon transition and how it's actually in the interest of the company to do so if it wants to remain competitive over the long term. The conversation was very constructive and the company certainly, I think, took our point on why it really needs to communicate better on what it plans to do. It's not enough to have a plan. It's also important to have better communication around the plan. So we're very encouraged that a few months after our engagement with the company, they actually talked about aspiring to be um, carbon neutral over the long term. And, And I think that's a great example of how having constructive engagement with companies can actually lead to positive impact. Jen, um, what's the long-term goal here? At what point do you think that companies start to drive this themselves rather than responding to government directives or to the the stewardship engagement from um, investor companies? I think we're already seeing it. I think the examples that we've heard give voice to that fact. You know, fundamentally what we believe is that when businesses integrate sustainability considerations into the, into their into the way they're run they are better managed businesses they will have competitive advantages over the long term it's it ought to be embedded into their company strategy and i think what we're seeing in china but also around the world is companies realizing that advantage that it gives them and so it is no longer simply just around you know investors saying you've got to do this or 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 regulators saying you have to do this it's businesses proactively saying my business is better run relative to my competitors if i do this and and to add to jen's point we're already seeing an increasing um, number of companies coming to us wanting to talk about ESG issues without us prompting them. So a big wave of interest, as, uh, as Jen was talking about a little bit earlier. Now, the report also looks um, in, in quite a lot of detail at the technical side of shareholder voting in China. And I never thought I'd say this, Flora, but it was really interesting <laughs> to look in that at that technical de- detail, because it seems that it's significantly more difficult for investors to navigate um, that uh, that landscape than elsewhere in the world. Why, why is that? I can totally understand why it's surprising because the um, image, the China capital market has held over you know a very long time is that as an investor, you don't have a lot of rights. 
you, you don't have a lot of recourse to protect yourself. That's not true. And I think the, the regulators here are actually very protective. And as a result, they are asking for shareholder approval for a lot of things that would have come under the remit of the board and management in, in, in many other markets, such as provision of guarantees to subsidiaries. It's just you know things that you cannot imagine would actually come to shareholder approval in China. So um, being able to analyze these resolutions and exercise your voting rights in an informed manner is actually a very effective tool to protect the value of your investment. And that's what we're trying to do with you know, the, the third part of our report, basically highlighting you know, what are the resolutions that are potentially problematic and, and also sharing our views on how, you know, as an investor, you should be analyzing these resolutions effectively to come to a conclusion that's actually in your interest. And, and very briefly, Flora, one small point that I picked out of this is the number of shareholder meetings that Chinese companies have is quite different to that in other parts of the world. Yeah, so normally a company would only have one shareholder meeting a year. That's the annual shareholder meeting. But in China, the average number is actually close to four. And that's a direct result of, you know, a lot of the resolutions being required um, for shareholder approval. So, you know, it's almost mind boggling as an investor when you just embark on your journey of voting in China. And it's not just the number of meetings, it's also the number of resolutions. Again, if you look at, you know, other parts of the world, the average number of resolutions is probably five, six, but in China, it can go to 20 easily. So if, if you add the numbers up, the amount of work required to analyze each resolution um, in an informed manner is very, very daunting. But at the same time, it also gives investors a lot of voices if we can use that right effectively. So um, very demanding to be an active shareholder, but it means that you've got more opportunity to, to try to make your voice heard. Jen, beyond those voting technicalities, what other practical lessons can investors take from, from this report? So let me answer that in two ways, by looking at the investor perspective and the corporate perspective. So I think from the investor perspective, I think there's a clear case the report makes for investors in China to be more active in their engagement and voting practices. And that's at the asset owner level, but that's also at the asset manager level. Um, and one of the interesting findings of the report is from looking at companies that are dual listed in Hong Kong and in China, so on the A and the H share market, the voting records are quite different even when you come down to the same company. And what that shows you is that gap that still, that, that, that still needs to be closed. But from the corporate perspective, I think a lot of Chinese companies still regard ESG and sustainability as being either matters of corporate social responsibility, which it isn't, or as matters of regulatory compliance which misses the real benefit that, that ESG can bring to their, to their business. And I think that I, I see that as being both a positive and a negative. It's a negative because I think the market needs to change its attitudes in this regard. But it's a positive for companies that have already made that change because the, the, the position in China is such that those companies can distinguish themselves much more clearly I think some of the examples that we've heard earlier, these point to companies that are beginning to recognize the benefits of thinking about this strategically. And in a market like China, that's going to stand out more than, than in a market like, say, Europe. Okay, we're nearing the end. I've got another quick question here, Flora, for you about disclosure, about companies um, disclosing information. Is any ESG reporting mandatory yet in China? 
Not yet, not yet. But you know, encouragingly, we're seeing more and more companies voluntarily disclosing what they call a corporate social responsibility report in China. But essentially, provides a lot of information around、um, ESG. But the the problem with having that CSR report is it's it's not standardized. You know, making it more difficult for investors to actually make good use of those data. So we would still prefer、um, to see regulators making it mandatory and providing some guidance in terms of you know. Um, the disclosure practice.、Um, I think the market is actually anticipating that to be the case、um, fairly quickly because you know regulators, including exchanges and 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 the securities regulator, have been looking at this space for for a long time. So we're positive that this will become mandatory quite quickly. Jim, so you know, notwithstanding the 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 negative spin of your question, Richard, I actually see it as being a positive that Chinese companies are voluntarily. Uh, adopting ESG and CSR reporting now, I think in quite in in quite significant numbers. So I think we estimate close to a thousand companies, so r- roughly twenty five percent of the investable universe, now voluntarily providing. Uh, ES CSR and ESG reporting to the market, and that's a more than fifty percent increase over the last seven to eight years. The other thing I think this will have a, a clear impact on is on the third party ratings. Of these companies by by the major providers, because I think it's relatively well known that those ratings depend largely on how companies are disclosing themselves, and currently those companies are relatively lowly rated by our global ESG rating providers. But as we see that improvement in disclosure, I think we can see that improvement in that score, and that improvement in the score is going to drive a lot of capital flow into those companies as well. So, Jen,、um, interesting point. You're, you're talking there, though, about、um, the ratings that the the big agencies give uh, to uh, to companies, the ESG ratings. Flora, what about the ratings that、um, Fidelity's analysts give to to companies as well? How dependent are they on、um, formal disclosure, and how much is it、um, sort of digging around and and speaking to companies directly? I think for you know Chinese companies, where you know disclosure is still quite patchy. Um, our rating is a lot more heavily based on our own engagement with companies, through which we actually gain deeper insight. And I know we talk about the positive changes in China around disclosure, but the 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 truth of the matter is that overall disclosure level is still quite low. And that's again, I think,、um, point to the importance of of engagement in doing sustainable investing effectively in China, because true engagement, you can actually have Gain much deeper insight on how the company actually thinks about this issue and how they are delivering whatever they are they are promising, you know, investors. And in a market where disclosure is 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 lacking, we have to really add on to、um, the disclosure our own assessment of a company to form a rating that is really reflecting the reality of the company. Fascinating! Such an awful lot of change、um, in in all sorts of levels and layers in this in this context. A really interesting discussion around that.、Uh, I'd like to thank my guests, Jen Hui Tan, Flora Wang, and Terence Tsai.、Um, you can read the full report on China's stewardship, including the research and more stories about Fidelity's engagement at fidelityinternational.com. The producer was Seb Morton Clark, with technical support from Alex Wilcox, Madison Fletcher, and Tommy Sue. From all of us at Fidelity. Goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.